Programming notes and the weekly bottom line upfront summaries for the week of April 24th, 2022. It's our first week in three weeks that isn't a takeover week. (laughs) I don't think we'll be having many more of the takeover weeks in the future. The logistics around them are, are quite challenging. As per usual, please do check out the show notes for a link to the Patreon and links to the episode release schedule. Again, the entire Patreon audience at time of recording being all of one subscriber, it shows that there is not enough market interest to get companies to chip in any funding or any additional help, which limits the amount of initiatives the community can pursue. It really is quite telling, honestly, that it's been very difficult to get people stepping up to help in the community and also to get any funding for for things. I think what this is showing is that some people are either taking value from it and not pushing value back in, or that this isn't as valuable as some people think. So we we may have to reassess how some of this stuff, uh, the community things are working. For this week, as per usual, we'll have the bottom line upfront summaries in a second. On Monday, Episode 64 will be the crucial value of data about your data, approaching data with a product mindset. She's an interview with Sadie Martin. Sadie and I chatted about how we can apply the product mindset to data so we can set ourselves up to be able to measure the effectiveness of our data practices. What's working, what isn't, is what we are trying better than what we were doing before, etc. What I'm finding is There's just a lot, lot, lot of people out there who aren't measuring exactly what we're doing uh, around data with data of their own. And so it was kind of a uh, mind-blowing type of of interview. I think you'll get a lot out of it. Number 65 is uh, that will be on Tuesday, and that's what's a data contract between friends, setting expectations with data contracts. That's an interview with Abe Gong, who co-created the Great Expectations, Data Observability, Data Quality, Data Monitoring um, project. So this one's more on data contracts. Abe and I chatted about how people are looking to collaborate around data contracts, with most of the examples being about using the open source Great Expectation tool. But I think just in general, it's, it's useful to understand how people are approaching these challenges of how do we work together to ensure that data producers and data consumers are on the same page and that data producers can understand how data consumers are using their data and that data consumers have an avenue and a way to easily kind of share with those producers what what they're doing and why. Uh, Episode number 66, which will be out on Wednesday, is Negotiation as Your Avenue to Success in Data Mesh. And this is Mesh Musings 12. I give a bit about how important it is to use negotiation in data mesh instead of a requirement setting. The collaborative approach to getting to valuable outcomes is often unsaid, but it needs to be shouted from the rooftop. It actually pairs well with with Abe's episode as well. We need to get to a place where we're having a lot more conversations and working together, collaborating to get to the best outcomes instead of just kind of deciding what's going to be best for um, our data consumers or or things like that, or data consumers putting requirements onto data producers as well. 
On Friday, it'll be episode number 67, all about interoperability and standards in Data Mesh, which is an interview with Samia Rahman. You may recognize Samia's name. She has put out a lot of content when she was at ThoughtWorks about what um, ThoughtWorks was doing with Data Mesh, and, and uh, she had done a couple of different webinars and talks and things like that. So Samia and I discussed the need for interoperability in general, and specifically interoperability standards within Data Mesh. I think it will genuinely surprise you how much she talks about it's okay to iterate towards your goal around interoperability and the, that you don't need to have all your standards worked out up front. You want to set yourself up to not, you know, paint yourself into a corner or to just have nothing but data silos, but it's okay to kind of figure it out as it goes. It gives us all some confidence to move forward. So I think you'll really enjoy this week's episodes and let's get to the bottom line upfront summaries. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Sadie Martin, Senior Product Manager for the Data Platform at Q4 Inc., about applying a product mindset to data in general. This is really crucial to getting data as a product right, but also in building out your, your data platforms and even a lot of the processes just in general for implementing data mesh. Sadie started as a data analyst where the team didn't have a product manager. They were doing a lot of work and they just weren't sure if what they were doing would work or even if after they had done it, if it had had a positive impact, if, if what they had done was good work. So she started to take on some of the task of answering those questions and started transitioning into being a product manager for data. So what really is a product mindset? For Sadie, the easy definition, but with a lot of depth and nuance is it's all about really understanding the problem. For most organizations, really thinking about the problem you are trying to solve relative to data is, is pretty new. There may be a data request, but what product or process is that data contributing to? And what is that product or process trying to solve? Sadie believes measuring the problem is really crucial. Once you figure out what you are trying to solve, what is the scope of the problem? How are you going to measure if you are actually solving the problem? Especially, is it better than what you were previously doing? She also talked about the importance of customer centricity. Really, why are they making a data ask? Should this be a one-off or a repeatable process? Did they ask for really the complete set of what they need? You know, that kind of back and forth communication of, of really finding what you're going to actually have to do in the long run, not just what did the ticket say? <laughs> One crucial insight Sadie has brought from product management to data is to be willing and ready to throw things away. If it ain't working, don't be too precious. That's a very different mindset than we've historically had relative to data. There's also the idea that processes can devolve quickly. So ensuring when you start a repeatable data process, you need to understand the effort to keep it going. If the upstream of your data product is constantly changing without your knowledge or understanding, it's going to be a bad, bad time. You know, that's something that Data Mesh really obviously looks to address. But if you're not uh, <laughs> in an organization that's implementing Data Mesh yet, you know, you, you want to really figure that out. 
While it feels counterintuitive, Sadie lamented that for most, it's often quite difficult to get the buy-in that you need data to measure if your data work is actually providing value. I'll say that again. It, it, It feels weird to say, but we haven't really historically measured the impact of data work very well. So getting buy-in to set up an effective measurement system ahead of time for for your data work is is hard. It's worthwhile to do, but again, it's it's hard. You need to take the time to do spikes and investigate ahead of time and slow down enough to set yourself up to measure your results. A continuing theme throughout the conversation is the need to give the team time to figure out how to approach challenges and set yourself up to succeed. Just continuing to go off assumptions and gut feelings is going to put you in a vulnerable spot, you know, to a competitor really doing the work around this. Sadie looks at measuring the success of data work in two ways. The first feels obvious once said, but really isn't to me. Start by measuring the baseline. Without the, that baseline, you can't measure if you're having an impact. And lots of data work proves to be low value or even negative value. You try a hypothesis and it isn't working. How do you get to the answer of, is this hypothesis right or not? Is it valid or invalid? You measure the incremental change for for that effectiveness, and you have to set yourself up to really do that and, and think about that baseline first. So what happens when you do look at your work and find out it's not been valuable? You know, Sadie talked about you have to get away from the sunk cost fallacy. It's absolutely okay to make bets, and they don't pay off. You just understand that and you move on. That's literally what a bet is. You're hoping for a positive outcome, but it might not happen. That willingness to frankly assess if it's working is is really crucial. You need to really investigate if you are solving the problems you set out to solve. And by proving out the value of the product mindset so you can make better bets in the future. A lot of the product mindset is also thinking about return on investment, not just maximizing the return or value of data work. A $20 return for one week of work is better than a $100 return for 20 weeks of work. Can this simple get you where you want to go without doing the extra, you know, cool but complicated and or risky parts? Sadie mentioned a few things getting in the way of applying the product mindset to data. One is that there are often teams making promises on behalf of the data team without checking with them first. If all had someone write a check on our behalf, and it ain't fun. We need there to be communication before committing to data work. The other is many data-consuming teams view the data platform teams as simply service teams and not really partners. We need to get to a place where all data consumption and production is about a partnership instead of a merely uh, pub-sub type of relationship or a service model. There is a misconception that data work is all about facts. A large part of it is discovery work, much more than in most disciplines. For Sadie, measuring a team's effectiveness should focus more on getting to an answer than getting to the preferred answer of you know finding the, the really, really valuable things. It, it's about getting to an effective way of evaluating hypotheses. So evaluating a lot of hypotheses and improving them invalid isn't a bad thing. You prevented a lot of toil work that wouldn't have added value. Make sure to measure your teams based on on that type of of aspect. So some closing thoughts, advice that, that I took away here. Anyone can apply a product mindset, 
not just the product manager. So everybody should be thinking in, in a product way. Second, giving yourself the time uh, ahead of starting work to investigate and create your measurement framework, including your baselines, is crucial to measuring progress and choosing where to focus, right? If we're learning how to get better at, at doing data work as we evolve, we kind of have to be able to measure how we're actually doing. The third is approach your, your data work with intentionality. I think this is important for all of data mesh, but especially around things like this, because you know your, your data team is always a precious, precious resource. And the last, uh, really understand what you are trying to accomplish and what your immediate customers slash consumers are trying to use the data for to so that they can accomplish. What are they trying to get to so that you can really align with them well? So I, I think this is going to help you really think about kind of sustainable and scalable ways to think about data work. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? interviewed Abe Gong, the co-creator of the open source data quality monitoring observability tool, Great Expectations. Abe is also the co-founder and CEO of Superconductive, which is offering Great Expectations as a service and, and pushing its development. I asked Abe to be on to talk about all things data contracts. He's one of the few people I could find who has published good content on the subject prior to kind of the beginning of this year. One caveat before jumping in is that Abe is passionate about the topic and has created tooling to help address it. So try to view Abe's discussion of great expectations as an approach rather than as a commercial for specifically the great expectations project slash product. Important point that has come up in all of the conversations about data contracts on this podcast is that data contracts aren't only about the schema. If you view them that way, the semantics can change, but the contract will still be deemed valid. Essentially, the data is wrong, but it's failing silently. That's a bad thing. So on to the fun of data contracts. Are, are we trying to lock ourselves into serving data in the exact same way going forward? No. Or are we really trying to set a social agreement, a set of expectations? So Data consumers know what they're getting and can feel safe in the reusability and repeatability, you know, that steadiness of the data products they are consuming from. Abe believes the, the latter, and I see his point after our conversation of, of that we want to really set these as, as expectations. So to define expectations here, this would include the, the schema and, and some like value ranges and types in the data. So for instance, a, a column may be uh, a ranking system of one to five, and then the application team changes it to be one to 10. The schema may not be broken. It is still passing whole numbers, but the new range is not within expectations. There isn't a perfect way to share semantic expectations as well. And I don't believe there ever will be. I don't think that, that a tool can really do that. We need to fall on communication and process to really address that. To start the conversation, Abe shared some of his background experience living the pain of unexpected upstream data changes 
causing data chaos and lots of work to recover from and, and adapt to. Part of where we need to get to using something like data contracts is to remove the need to recover in addition to uh, adapting and move towards just having that controlled expected adaptation. As Abe put it, while upstream changes are a breaking change for the data consumer, it wasn't a breaking change for the producer. So how do we let the, the producers really know what they're going to, if what they're going to do is going to change or break things for people downstream. At current, Abe sees the best way to not break those kind of social expectations around that, that contract uh, is via getting consumers and producers in a meeting to talk about upcoming changes and prepare. You know, something like versioning or, or just kind of working with that consumer team specifically to understand what's going to be happening. But Abe sees a world where we don't even need that meeting going forward. Kind of self-healing data consumption that automatically adapts to changes upstream where possible. I think that is a bit pie in the sky thinking, but I'd love for us to get there. I'm just skeptical. Abe sees two distinct use cases in general for data contracts, or more specifically, how people are using great expectations to implement data contracts. The first is purely defensively. Put some validation on the data you are ingesting to prevent data that doesn't match from blowing up your own work. And then the second type is when the consuming team shares their expectations specifically with the producers. There's more of a formal agreement or, or contract with a shared set of expectations. This agreement conversation often happens when there is an upstream breaking change as kind of the factor that caused the conversation instead of just somebody putting in the blocking to prevent those things from being an issue. They've also mentioned something where I don't quite understand the exact impl implications here, but when talking about data contracts, there is a third constituent in the room, not just the producers and the consumers. The third constituent is the data itself. The data has a veto. Sometimes the consumers and, and producers may agree, but the data makes it hard or it would be incorrect to move forward in that one way. Again, the data has a veto. We didn't dig deeper there, but I, I think it's an interesting concept that, that people should really start to think about and, and look at more. We had an interesting discussion about push versus pull uh, on data contracts. Should the producer team create an all-encompassing contract or should we have more consumer-driven contacts? Would producer-driven contracts be too restrictive? preventing the serendipity insights data mesh aims to produce? Or as well, do they have to think about every single potential use case ahead of time? And then they're kind of in this boat of saying, we're going to do these 80 things when the consumers really only want them to serve up uh, things to allow 40 of those or 20 of those. Would consumer-driven contracts mean multiple contracts for each data product that the producer agrees to. Is that really sustainable? So I think in summing it up, the idea of explicit expectations around a data product that are the result of collaboration between producers and consumers sounds like where we should all head if possible. If the expectation set is only coming from the producer side, it might be overly restrictive or overly broad and kind of um, commit them to doing things that aren't of value. 
and miss a lot of the nuance necessary to actually create that consumer trust. And exclusively consumer-driven contacts don't sound sustainable or scalable. So I think this is a really good um, addition to the general topic that we've been having on data contracts and that it will provide a lot of food for thought. So let's go ahead and jump in. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Samia Rahman, Director of Data and AI with a focus on product at life sciences company, CGen. I asked Samia to be on because of her background with Data Mesh while at ThoughtWorks. She's done a number of pieces of content and her focus on getting going with CGen's Data Mesh implementation. The general topic was on interoperability and standards, not just for data mesh, but mostly focused on data mesh. There are two things I took away from this interview. The first is don't try to plan too much ahead for developing interoperability standards, but definitely keep an eye out for places where you could start to develop those standards. And your standards really, really should evolve. You don't have to nail them right out of the gate. The second is your interoperability will also evolve. You don't need to make every data product interoperable with every other data product, and you can start with basic interoperability first. The more you can standardize around unique identifiers, the better, but it's okay to not get it right first thing out of the gate. You can evolve your data products and you can evolve your thinking. We left the definition to the end, but for Samia, interoperability is about taking information from two systems and combining them to get a higher value. A simple definition, but a good one. Samia started her career, and even before in school, focusing on software, especially end-to-end development. A repeating pattern for her has been how crucial contract testing is to getting things into a trustable and scalable state. We've had them in hardware and software for a long time, and if you don't have easy testing, those systems often get replaced pretty quickly. Those tests are the safety net to allow for fast and reliable evolution. And that evolution is a key theme for this conversation. Set yourself up to iterate and evolve as you learn. Work to not paint yourself into a corner. So again, we need to figure out how we apply these same principles to data. Samia's new role at CGen, which is a life sciences company, isn't where her domain knowledge historically has been that deep. Data standards, including specifically for interoperability, are kind of everywhere in the space. There's FHIR, the FDA has some, lots of other ones. But it's still not great for truly sharing the meaning of the data. FAIR is a is trying to get there, but the interoperability and domain knowledge isn't really standardized yet under FAIR. To get to interoperability, there needs to be agreement on the unit of information exchange. But that's still very difficult. Samia strongly recommends not getting ahead of yourself on interoperability and standards. It's perfectly okay to start small. Iterate and build on your standards for interoperability. To start, have some key identifying quote-unquote linkers done. Get things out in front of consumers so they can explore and give 
feedback and use that feedback to power your iteration. Incrementally building towards a standard is crucial rather than trying to start with a standard right out of the gate. If you're going to build a standard, reusability should be your first goal. If it is only for a single use case, that isn't a standard. It's just an implementation detail of that single use case. Samia again recommends contract testing slash a schema checker and definitely try to leverage existing standards. There are some that are out there. Again, there aren't a lot that are really great, but go and and look for them. It's also not a huge deal if you have more than one standard internally. You don't need one standard to rule them all. Per Samia, if you implement versioning, data consumers are usually very willing to work with data producers as those data producers evolve their data products. But without versioning, you are just pulling the rug out from underneath those consumers. And right now, there isn't a lot of good info on versioning data out there, nor the tooling to make it easier. The need to evolve data products is why absolute self-service is probably never possible. The human in the middle is important to help consumers evolve their thinking as the business model evolves and as the data products evolve. Samia mentioned the data consumer responsibility to inform data producers inform them, inform them about needed changes, issues with their data products, etc. We can't have data consumers going off and all creating their own fixes to data quality issues. The data producers need to know so they can fix them at the source. Juan as Rosier has talked about some of that in his episode as well. You need to be on the lookout for interoperability opportunities say that five times fast, and you validate that there is a need for interoperability. An important point is that not all data needs to be interoperable. Samia finished with her interoperability vendor wishlist, some kind of tooling that can more easily detect when someone should use an existing standard, and that you can put those standards in front of data product producers much more easily. How can we make it very easy for data product producers to build in interoperability and leveraging and leverage existing standards from the start? This is really one of the first episodes that's really dug at all deeply into interoperability. So as you start to think about how you're going to work on interoperability in the long run, I think this is a really crucial episode to kind of jumpstart that journey for you. 